a doctor? But probably not the one you're expecting. Welcome back to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that sits inside your head, the podcast that lives among the dead, the podcast that sees you in your bed and eats you when you're sleeping. In each episode, we take a look at a different aspect of the Doctor Who universe. Oh, what a horrible word that features Paul McGann's Doctor. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm Rebecca Chapman. We're continuing our quest to feature the eighth Doctor's exploits when they're on screen, in books, novellas, forecast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else. And this week, we're turning back to the world's big finish as we discuss the results of the recent RadioTimes.com Doctor Who, the monthly adventures poll. Try saying that quickly, which revealed the top five eight Doctor stories. Big finish listeners and Radio Times readers decided which were their favourite episodes from each Doctor featured in the range, with the results being revealed a few months ago now. And... To join us and discuss the 8th Doctor Top 5, we have a man who knows a thing or two about, as a man who knows a thing or two about critiquing Big Finish audios. Special guest, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Matt Michael and um, I've been listening to Big Finish since 1998. Wow, so you're a long-term listener like me from the Benny days. I am, yep. I had the first uh, couple on tape as well, That's, that's how old school I am. That's rather brilliant. And then, of course, you got paid pennies to write about them as well. Yes. Yeah. So for several years now, I've um, on and off written um, Big Finish reviews and other audio reviews for Doctor Who magazine, um, including probably not so many of the McGann monthly adventures, because a lot of those happen quite early on in his um, time with Big Finish, but certainly all of the sort of Lucy Miller and many of the, the live plays. Yes. Fantastic. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. So before we look at the five stories chosen in the poll, I'm going to ask you both now, are there any stories that you think should have been there, Matt? For me, I think it was a really respectable top five. The only one that I would probably swap out would be Terra Firma, which was a 2005 audio, the eighth Doctor coming up against Davros for the first time. And I think a really, really powerful sort of spin on the Dalek Invasion of Earth type storyline. Really good. Hmm. Kenny, what do you think could have been there? Well, I completely agree with what Matt said about Terra Firma. That should have been in there. That's one of my favourites. Joe Lidster, absolute corker of a script. Two others which I thought probably could have been included. Storm Warning, which kicked it all off. Uh, Alan Barnes's rip-roaring classic, which is basically Titanic in the sky, but with aliens. And Neverland, the story that concluded the second season, which has got a very emotional core to it and came from a very, very difficult, dark place for Alan Barnes himself when he was writing it because his baby daughter died and he puts his grief into the script and talking about people who who had lives that never were and that's where the never people came from. So they are three that I would have said would have been potential contenders to be in. Completely. So from the stories that didn't make the top five to the ones that did, Let's start by discussing the story in fifth place, the 30th monthly range release, Seasons of Fear by Paul Cornell and Caroline Simcox with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. Doctor Who. Seasons of Fear. Rayli, the time approaches. Have the sacrifices at the appointed coordinates. We will 
will switch to the psionic mind beam for the transfer of power. It was at the Singapore Hilton, on the cusp of the years 1930 and 1931, that I first met Mr. Sebastian Grail. My masters will bestow upon me the earldom of Earth. It will be my efforts that will allow their entrance to this world. Ugh. If there isn't anything here, then I... So what happens now? Lucilius announces the blood bathing and then Greylight carries it out. I have gathered the holy metal, followed their instructions. They are grateful enough for that. No, no, it's not the time yet. Over and out. Doctor. The first installment of your immortality awaits you. Right you are. Tonight is when they, whoever they are, begin to make Grail immortal. We have to stop it. Do you think this is deserving of its place here? I love this one. I think the villain feels very much in the vein of someone like Scaroth, someone who's fragmented through time um, and is a really vivid character. I love the TV movie style narration that happens at points through the audio, which feels like a real callback to the TV movie. And I really enjoy some of the, the doubling of roles. I particularly enjoy the sort of Edward and Edith odd couple episode i think it's the second episode just hugely fun um and the the returning villain don't know if we want to spoil it but it was su it's such a funny idea so, and such a great voice for audio as well so i think um gary russell was absolutely spot on when he said they might have been poorly realized on screen but but these monsters have a fantastic voice fantastic face for audio i guess yeah i mean i think after 19 years we probably can say it's got the nymon in it and I think if, if somebody's listened to this podcast and doesn't know that I'm on in it, then sorry. But no, oh, I, I completely agree with everything you said. I think it's a great story. There's there's some really good stuff. As you say, narration is brilliant. And the fact we've got this dashing image of the Doctor having a sword fight on top of a castle and falling off it. And it's it, it's very much, it feels in a, a lovely, traditional Doctor Who type story to it. And of course, Sebastian Grail, just what a villain. We've got Stephen Perring, is such a lovely, rich voice as well. And it's quite, carries quite a lot of menace, I would say, as well. Definitely. So in fourth place in the poll was a story with a difference. Shirtso by Robert Shearman, the 52nd monthly release. After the huge cast and spectacle of the 40th anniversary, Zagreus, we had this little gem with a cast consisting of just two, Paul McGowan and India Fisher. Doctor Who, Shirtso. I'm sorry, it occurs to me since I'm hiding here from so many nothings and somethings. I don't yet know whether I should be hiding from you as well. Who are you? Doctor, you know me, I'm Charlie. Charlie? Yes, you remember. Rubbish. What? Charlie's safe, I know she is. It's me, Doctor. No, Please. Charlie wouldn't betray me. She wouldn't betray me like that. Ugh. Doctor! Doctor, it's trying to speak. Impossible. It's barely evolved a rudimentary nervous system, let alone a means to master conversation. Help! What are you? We want to help. Help! 
Yes, yes, we'll do our best. Doctor? I don't know. Yes, very good. That's quite enough. You're scaring Charlie. You're scaring me, Comfort. The big question here is, Matt, how do you pronounce it? Because no one can seem to give a definite answer. Oh, I, I always call it Scherzo. Interesting. I'm in the habit of saying Scherzo. Scherzo is probably right, because sort of schizophrenia, it comes from the same kind of... You're probably right. I'm probably wrong. Oh, I don't know. I'm just that's just the way I've always said it. I sh- should ask somebody like Russell Stone, who did the music. He knows a thing or two about it. He might know what it derives from as a musical term. Yeah. How did you find this one, Matt? Because I think after the Grace, when you've got a massive casting, it just seems like here's more and more people and more cameos, and you've got so many regulars from the TV show plus the Big Finish companions to then have it stripped down to just two people walking around in a glass tube over and over again. I remember when I first heard that, it was a bit of a shock. Yeah, it's a two-hander pretty much. And I think the monster is very much, again, designed to work on audio. It's a sort of sound monster. This one, I think, I don't want to damn it with faint praise, but it's one I admire probably more than I enjoy. I think it's really dark listening probably even darker than things like the chimes of midnight or the holy terror i think it's really creepy it's got a sort of pan horror style to it with real body horror elements um, as the doctor and charlie can't see anything they come across um, this corpse that they have to feel um, and understand and i think that's that's kind of creepy and i think the places it takes the doctor and charlie's relationship to is quite dark as well particularly after sort of charlie had declared that she loved the doctor in zagreus and particularly after the sort of story that they'd gone through in the the second series of adventures it really really sort of twists that into somewhere quite unexpectedly grim i think yeah, I mean, I think the fact they've got, as you say, the organism that's evolving and they're having to cut it with a brooch and it turns out they're effectively eating something that's evolved into copies of themselves. It's really, really quite disgusting as well. But I think the revelation, the fact that they're going round and round and then they don't realise it, and the fact it's a tube. Again, it's, it's very dark, it's very twisted and, and it's very Rob Shearman, isn't it? No, it's absolutely, totally Rob Shearman. I think that dark twist is absolutely in line with the twists that you get in the chimes of midnight or the holy terror you, you really with a rob sherman script you know you're going to get some sort of nasty sting in the tail and i think this really delivers yeah the thing that i was also surprised by on first listen was the fact that there is absolutely no reference to the events of the grace it's pretty much a case of they start off they're in the tardis and they're just not even talking about it the doctor's obviously in a bad mood having had to leave everything behind but I think that's possibly because Zagreus was written and recorded after the whole season had been done that followed. So they knew where they were going from Neverland, but they just had to do that linking step in between and get that written and recorded. Did you find that unusual, that disconnect? Actually, not at the time listening to it. I think the bit that stuck in my mind was was the Doctor's reaction to he had sacrificed himself in Zagreus for Charlie and to save Charlie's life and the fact that he's not dead and the fact that she's followed him into this sort of exile almost he's furious because it's invalidated the choice that he made and I I thought that through line from Zagreus was was really interesting and, and very very different uh, 
Um, so no, I don't think I, I kind of felt that when I was listening to it. But next time I do, I will be listening out for that. Yeah. And the other thing that really struck me about it is the lovely story at the start of each episode, which they've got um, with, with the old king banishing sound. And uh, I think that was, I mean, what a performance from Paul McGann. Apparently he just, he read that and did it in one take. And it was so good. It was just a case of, that's it. We're going with that one. How did you find that? Did you find it? Because it's slightly a slightly different storytelling mechanism, but it kind of gives us the danger of sound. It does. And I think it ties in again to the way that Rob Sherman often uses fairy tales and, and stories like that to add an element of darkness to the scripts. I, I love the sort of story of the King Who Banished Music, I think it's called. And and you're right, whenever Paul McGann goes into narration mode, he's so good. He's so good at that. He's got such a brilliant voice for, for sort of reading and narrating. Uh, it's one of the things I that I enjoyed about Seasons of Fear and one of the things that he does so well in the TV movie. And I think anything that exploits that ability um, is good for me. Absolutely, but I definitely agree. It's definitely a story that's worthy of its place in the top five. Oh, 100%, 100% um, yeah. So Scherzo was the first story in the Divergent Universe series, and at third place in the poll is, appropriately, the third story set in the Divergent Universe, The Natural History of Fear by Jim Mortimer, featuring the Doctor, Charlie, and their new friend, Keres. Or does it? Doctor Who, The Natural History of Fear. This is the voice of Light City. Attention. Welcome to your new workday. Today is Jubilee Day. Citizens may celebrate for one day without arrest or punishment. Happiness through acceptance. Welcome to your Jubilee Day. Welcome to your Jubilee. Do you worship? Do you go to church? Do you believe in God? How many gods are there? What's his name? What does he look like? Perhaps he's a woman or... Perhaps he has a beard, perhaps a, a, a bearded woman. Uh, perhaps he's, he's many, many gods, uh, a whole army of gods. Perhaps he's plotting to attack us now, to destroy us, a, a whole army of gods rampaging across a desert, a plateau, to kill us, to wipe us out. Would God do that? Is God fair? Does he love us? Does he hate us? Perhaps he's teasing us, perhaps he's toying with us, perhaps he's playing with us, playing with our minds, perhaps we're all just part of one big experiment, perhaps we're just toys, perhaps we're all little toy figures that God is playing with and sometimes he bites off our heads and sometimes he stamps on us and sometimes he throws his toys back in the box and he doesn't want to play with us anymore, he doesn't want us anymore, he, he wants to get rid of us, he wants to get rid of us, to throw us all away, get rid of us, don't do that to us, no, he loves us, really, he loves us, doesn't he, doesn't he, it's not true, we all love each other. Perhaps that's the answer. Love isn't that what we need? But then perhaps love is evil. Is it a sin to love? Is it a sin? Is it bad? Is, is it wrong to love? To hate? Perhaps to hate is safer. Hmm? Or to feel nothing? Do we feel nothing? Do we feel nothing? Perhaps we'll be safe if we just feel nothing. And if we don't speak, perhaps we'll be safe. Why? Why?
Matt, this is a very atypical story in a very Orwellian setting. What did you think about it? This is one of my absolute favourite Big Finish productions, not just for Magam, but for, for anything that they've done. I think it does have a twist ending, but I think the journey to get to that ending makes it rewarding on repeat listens. I think it's such a powerful strange story it throws you right in at the deep end with india fisher and conrad westmas and, and paul mcgann playing very different characters than they normally play the environment is very sort of 1984 george orwell kind of authoritarian society and i think it's really interesting how jim mortimer picks up on probably the darkest characteristics of charlie and the doctor so charlie's sometimes can have a tendency to become a little bit clingy and whiny and the doctor can sometimes have a bit of a tendency to become quite dictatorial and sharp with people and i think mortimer picks up on those worst tendencies and really crafts some characters around those darker sides of our regulars so i, I really really enjoy that aspect i think the only the only downside for me is i think it was Keres's first story as a companion and I think the fact that the first story as a companion you don't really get Keres as a companion was possibly in retrospect problematic for, for the way that Big Finish wanted to develop Keres because I don't think the audience ever properly got a feel for him in his first couple of stories and I think in retrospect that's probably a mistake and it probably meant struggles later on to get the character landed in people's minds. Completely agree because I think if there had been another story in between Creed of the Crommon and The Natural History of Fear, which could have showcased Keris a bit more, where he could almost lead the way and you know save the Doctor and Charlie, be more dynamic and heroic. And there's abs- and it's such a great performance from Conrad throughout. But I think just to have that extra, extra one extra story in there would have really made a difference, just so you can get to know who the new guy is. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and that's not we can't hold that against The Natural History of Fear because I think it's a oh, fantastic no. video. I think it's more. In sequence, um, it made probably Conrad and Big Finish's life a bit more difficult, particularly when when you really need people to understand a more complicated character than Keres. He's not he's not the boy next door. He's quite a complex individual, and you just don't get any of that from Natural History of Fear. Yeah, I thought it's a very very clever story because no one is what you expect them to be. The fact that you've got some very very dark versions. You think of the Doctor, Charlie and Keris are being mind controlled? Has something happened? And you just have no idea what's going on. And in many ways, I mean, it really could have been, it doesn't have to be a Doctor Who story, this one. It really could have been a very clever science fiction story. And then it's only really right at the end, as you say, we get the little twist as to what happened and as to who everyone really is and what's going on. Obviously, we'll not spoil the twist because I don't think you've heard this one yet, Becca. So uh, we will uh, not reveal that to you, but I, I, it's very, very cleverly done. And I think the fact that you've got such lovely wee touches in there like the audio visuals theme from the old days which plays throughout when they're watching tv and rather than have the doctor who theme in there the sound design of the piece is is brilliant the sort of weird scene transitions and the the sort of pulsing buzzing noise that comes in occasionally whenever light city is making an announcement it's a very very disconcerting and very unique listen i think it still stands out now um, as a as a sort of high watermark big finish Absolutely, because I think it's one that sometimes gets overlooked when people are talking about the best stories because it's so atypical. It's very much, you know, it's, it's very much high concept 
and the fact that there's so much going on there and people just sometimes, I remember at the time, it got an awful lot of hate online because people just didn't get it. And it's really good to see that, you know, with time having passed, that there is an appreciation for what it was doing. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think I was really glad to see it in the top five because of all the ones in the top five, I think it's probably the one that I least expected to be there, but I think most deserves to be there. So I was delighted by that. Yeah, and it's got a lovely cover too, isn't it? Very bizarre, that spinning top. Yeah, and the spinning top's really important to the story as well, Without again, without spoiling it. Um, I think it's it's fascinating how all of these things start to build build together towards that final surprise. But it's brilliant. Yes, that's, that is it. But I think brewing is not underselling it. So at number two, we have our only entry in the top five that doesn't feature Charlie. As we encounter the Silver Turk by Mark Platt, as the Doctor encounters Mary Shelley and the Cybermen, an original idea from 2011. Doctor Who, the Silver Turk. The Vienna Exposition. We're in Vienna, but it's impossible. So quickly, have I been abducted? Not exactly. Freak! Leave me alone! This way to the Grand Theatre of Marionettenburg. Roll up, roll up! A cab ride, sir? Fräulein? Not today, thank you. Can't be too careful these days. Better not to walk, not after dark. Get, get it away! Attacks! I wouldn't want to alarm the Fräulein. Alarm her? This is Mary Shelley you're talking to. Author of the darkest, spookiest stories you could ever read. Am I? They scared the pants off me. Well, I, I didn't believe the stories, Fräulein, not till two nights back. That was when I saw him. Halfway down Wolfstrasse by the river, it was a black carriage. Slowly it went, and its horses were strange, walking all wrong. Clop, clip, clop. No driver? There was no driver. And as they passed me, the lamplight caught their eyes, and they were blue. <laughs> Two more black checkers taken. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Silver Turk wins the match! It's a trick! The Silver Turk? My, my husband invested in it. There was an automaton once called the Turk. It toured the courts of Europe playing chess. But that was years ago, surely it's not the same one. Does anyone believe what we're seeing? Is it an illusion or more than that? Quiet, I say. Will you part down? Let's see what's under the mask. No! <laughs> You vandal! What is it? I knew it. This is no fairground automaton. It's alive. So, Kenny, how did you enjoy this one? I absolutely love the Silver Turk. I think Mark Platt has got such a way with Cybermen as the story is number one in this poll, which we'll come to shortly is always up there, along with Spare Parts, which Mark wrote, which also features the Cybermen from Mondas, or Mondasian Cybermen, or Mondasian, however you choose to pronounce it. Whichever way Peter Capaldi says, I'll go with that. But it is just such a brilliant story. You've got a couple of Cybermen who've crashed on Earth, and they're in, in olden times, and it's just, I think it's just so wonderfully done. It's such a great idea, where the Doctor's with Mary on his travels, and as over the course of the three stories in this trilogy, there's wonderful little bits that drip into what Mary would ultimately write with Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, and it's, it's dripping with character. The setting is incredible. 
And it's really nice to actually get the Silver Turk in a Doctor Who story because that was something that Russell T. Davis had been considering previously for something on TV. And the flavour of it is, is just so wonderfully rich. The Doctor's relationship with Mary is really, really key to the whole thing. The fact that she's eyes full of wonder and the fact she's so young and impressionable, but also such an incredibly strong character as well. Really well written by Mark Blatt. And great use of the Cybermen as well. There's some wonderful audio visuals, if that makes sense, where you've got the Cybermen borrowing each other's arms so they can run around and over rooftops and through streets. And it's just an incredible image as well. And Mark Platt is just such a genius for creating these these wonderful scenarios. Matt, you're nodding your head in agreement. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think Mark Platt feels like one of those writers who's unfortunately his ideas have been hugely adopted by the new series, even if his scripts haven't directly been adapted. I was thinking the Silver Turk crops up eventually in Nightmare in Silver, pretty much with the sort of Cyberman chess playing character. And I think the idea of a damaged Cyberman meeting Mary Shelley obviously popped up in the most recent series in the Haunting of the Villa Diodati. So I think his ideas keep cropping up. I think Spare Parts crops up in The Age of Steel without ever quite doing a straight adaptation like Jubilee went into Dalek or Human Nature went into the TV episodes. But yeah, he's brilliant at the ideas and I would agree with everything he said, the great horror elements. I think Mary makes a really interesting contrast to Charlie and Lucy who'd been introduced by this point as well. Because I think this was a bit of a return to the main range for... Paul McGann, who had um, got his own sort of BBC Seven Big Finish radio series with Sheridan Smith in the interim. So this was a bit of a comeback. And it was really interesting to pair him with someone who's a total contrast to to Lucy in particular. Lucy's very sort of brassy and sort of modern day from Blackpool um, with very modern perspectives. And Mary is very, obviously very, very different, a 19th century lady who is much more refined and much more introverted. And I think it brings out different aspects of the Eighth Doctor's character to pair him with someone like that. It almost pushes him back towards his TV movie persona where he has to be a bit more forthcoming and a bit more energetic and a bit more excitable because Mary isn't those things naturally. Uh, He has to bring out the excitement in her whereas with Lucy quite often he's able to be a little bit more sarcastic and sardonic because she is the one who's excited by all of the opportunities of exploring the universe so I I think it was a great contrast and a really really good idea to to bring him back in a into the main range in a very different type of story than we were getting in the monthly adventures with Lucy. Yeah because at this point this was I think because they were working out what to do after To the Death and Lucy Miller. And it was to just to basically to reset and work out that obviously Dark Eyes came along. But it was a really, really clever way of bringing him back. And all those, picking up on all those references that we get even within McGann's first minute as the Doctor with Big Finish when he's talking about, oh, Mary, Mary, if only could have told him the real story in Storm Warning. She's great. And I see she's such a great contrast. It almost makes the Doctor feel more, maybe because he's more relaxed around, we get more around Charlie and Lucy. And he's a bit more lordish and a bit more aristocratic, I would say, as well. And these ones, mm. he's, he's definitely got that slightly more yeah, just a slightly more upper class feel to him than, than he would normally have because his, his speech patterns are almost slightly different. They're, they're more formal. I suppose it yeah. is earlier in his timeline as well. So that would make sense. The other thing that I really enjoyed about this, I, th- I really loved the performance of David Schneider 
that's something that's, yes. that leaps out to me. I think he's such a brilliant actor. He's so underused because people think of him mainly as a comic performer, particularly from his time in Alan Partridge and the day-to-day. And I think he, he just gives such, he's so alive, he's so vivid. And you can visualise him just going through the streets with his horse and carriage and just think, brilliant character. Yeah, it was one of those where I, I sort of looked at the cast list having, or while I was listening to it, and thought, oh, didn't even recognise that was David Schneider. And it, it just brings a, a different um, perspective when you're listening to it then, when you realise what a versatile actor he really is. Yeah, I mean, that's the amazing thing. You look at, I mean, all the stories we've talked so far, the performance has been incredible. We've not really said much about India Fisher. Just what a folly Charlie is for this Doctor. Yeah, I, I think um, it was gold dust to, to hit on Charlie. I think she's such a such an exuberant character. And I think that's such a good pairing with with the Eighth Doctor as well, because it allows him to grow into a bit more of a... I always call him the John Lennon of the Time Lords. I think Paul McGann has a sort of natural sardonicism and laid-backness, which pairs really well with Charlie as a sort of more of a Paul McCartney-type character, who's a bit more forthcoming and a bit more out there. And I think the pair of them are very Lennon and McCartney. They, they work so well together and I think it gives us an aspect of the Eighth Doctor that the books never managed to, to explore because obviously they didn't know how Paul McGann would have played the role had he had more of an opportunity to do so and it turns out he plays it with a really sort of nice sarcastic streak to him which had so much depth and so much character that just isn't there in print and you probably don't get much of in the tv movie just because it's his first pass at the role and that's not really there in the script he's having to pretty much do what he's been presented with rather than develop the character yeah and i think in india fisher again they struck gold somebody who's just got i mean just her first i mean just, you listen to storm warning and every you know every single line you can just hear the excitement in her voice it's, there's a wide-eyed sort of joy to the part when she's just when she's taking it all in and you can see why Russell T took quite a lot of inspiration when it came to creating Rose from Charlie with the fact that she's got some emotional depth to her as well it's different to the other big Finnish companions obviously Evelyn perhaps wasn't going to fall in love with the doctor whereas Charlie you can see why she's young she's impressionable and she's dashing about with this handsome young man or so he appears to be and the fact they've got such a close bond and you can see when it builds up to that scene in Neverland when she tells him that she loves him they're such a so, such an iconic pairing and I think that's really recognisable right? when, whenever Big Finish do a big anniversary story so like the legacy of time uh, or the light at the end the the go-to companion is is Charlie because I think that partnership is electric and I say this as someone who whose absolute favourite invention of Big Finish is Lucy Miller but I absolutely recognise that that Charlie and the Eighth Doctor are gold dust as a pairing they are the John and Katie of the audio world, I think. <laughs> Which story did you enjoy more? The audio tale with Mary or the television one? Oh, I think I have to say the audio one because I think Mary's story where, where she's introduced, I think it's a fantastic Jonathan Morris script. And that really sold me on the Eighth Doctor and, and Mary to start off with. And I think the Silver Turk just landed everything that was there in Mary's story so well that it had a real resonance that as good as a tv episode is you, you don't have that backstory when um, the 13th doctor meets meets mary so the audio story for me and i, I say this as someone who enjoyed the, the 13th doctor and, and mary story but my first love's probably paul mccann really so 
That is completely understandable. <laughs> so we've done our countdown and now we've hit the top spot. And it comes as no surprise that monthly range number 29, The Chimes of Midnight by Robert Shearman, takes the prime position. Doctor Who, The Chimes of Midnight. Well, Charlie, where are we? I don't know, Doctor. It's too dark. You were supposed to be getting me to Singapore, you know. 1930, remember? An Edwardian Christmas. How lovely. Mm, I never much liked plum pudding. Cook always used to make far too much of it, and we were still picking our way through it by New Year. Oh, I love a bit of plum pudding, though. Charlie, there'll be a death here soon. Edith, what are you saying? Who's dead? I can make you warmer than that fire ever could. Can't you just leave it, I said. I only wanted a kiss. Always been your favourite, ever since you were a little girl. It certainly has. You'll make me plum pudding forever, won't you? Even when I'm grown up. <laughs> There'll be another murder soon. And everyone will forget me. Don't you forget me, Charlie. Oh. Mr Shaughnessy, you're pointing a gun at us. Yes, sir. That's not a very nice way for a well-bred butler to behave, is it? You are not to go upstairs. It is not our place. We only go upstairs when we are summoned. Please... Don't leave me here on my own. Doctor? Doctor, where are you? Of course, it's not proof. I mean, I suppose I could be lying when I said I didn't kill her. Oh, yes. As of course could I. Stands to reason. Once you've committed murder, a bit of fibbing is hardly going to bother your conscience, is it? It's mocking us. Whatever this force is, it's mocking us. So I actually listened to The Chimes of Midnight for the first time with you, Kenny. Indeed. We listened to it together on uh, December 23rd last year. So just in time for Christmas. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. It felt cosy, like a story that you'd watch on the telly on, on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve. It, it was great. I loved it so much. But Matt, do you think it's deserving of the number one story? Yes, I do. I think it's an absolutely excellent script which it, i was reading a bit of background in the new audio adventures inside story book just to refresh myself on some of the background and i'm astonished to to read how little faith rob Sherman had in his own script when he was writing it and how nervous he was that it was going to actually be rejected because it's an astonishing script i think it's dark it's sapphire and steelish it's got elements of sort of ghost light uh, it's eerie it has just hugely funny moments like the cook being killed in plum pudding and, and uh, people being killed with sink plungers and chauffeurs being run over with their own car so it's hugely darkly humorous as, as you would expect from Rob Shearman but it's got a real punch to it as well I think you've had five stories with Charlie having carefree adventures with the Eighth Doctor having escaped certain death aboard the R101 and then suddenly this hits you with what the consequences for the web of time are going to be um, because Charlie should have died on the R101 and I think that that reveal is still quite shocking now uh, it, it really twists the series into a, a new direction and I think it's quite interesting as well like Shirtso the, the sort of central 
I guess, plot element of The Chimes of Midnight is that Charlie is somewhere that she shouldn't be and that renders someone's sacrifice pointless. And so there's a real link between Scherzo and The Chimes of Midnight, I think, thematically, which makes it um, quite fun that they're both in the, the top five. I love this story. I think it's brilliant. And the sound design is fantastic as well. Just you listen to it on the 23rd of December. What a perfect Christmas story. You really get that sense of a big house at Christmas um, on Christmas Eve with the ticking of the clock and the, the excitement of the plum pudding and the, the sort of below stairs chatter. And I, I think it's wonderful. Just a really great Christmassy story. Should listen to it on the 23rd of December every year. Yeah, I mean, I think I, we may have to. <laughs> I completely agree with you, Matt. And again, it's another one that's so visual for an audio story, as you say, the way that we're told how the bodies have been found and you can visualise them being killed. But then you've got wonderful things like Edith Thompson, the name appearing in the dust. And obviously, of course, later Edward Grove. And again, what a wonderful cast of Barnaby Edwards assembled. You cannot imagine anyone else playing these parts. They're particularly uh, when you've got Mr. Shaughnessy and Mrs. Baddeley, they're just they're just brilliant. They're just so per perfectly cast. And it's, it's dark and funny. There's that lightness of touch to it. And there's there are things that will make you smile. But then as it goes on and we discover exactly what's going on and why Edward's Grove is alive. And the fact it's all down to Edith taking her own life because Charlie had died in R101. It's, I mean, it's a really, really dark concept, isn't it? It's shocking. And I think without going overboard, I think Rob Sherman also brings out the sort of class element in a way that hasn't really been brought out in most of Charlie's previous stories. Charlie is upper class, she's a, from a wealthy family and there's just something incredibly tragic around the fact that she can barely remember who Edith is and yet Edith thinks Charlie's her best friend. Just just the, the discrepancy in their power and their social position is it's sort of like a wound to the heart when you when you hear that. And I think it I think India Fisher plays that as well as as that sort of horrified realization around how much she meant to someone who meant almost nothing to her. Yeah, and it's and as you mentioned, the music and the sound design with that wonderful use of piano from Russell Stone, Andy Hardwick doing a great job, and Gareth Jenkins on the sound design from ERS Studios. And it really is something special, which is all the more remarkable, considering they had so little time in which to record it because Invaders from Mars had overrun horrendously the previous day. It's an astonishing achievement, I think, well-deserving of its position in not just the Top 5 McGann, I think even what, 20 odd years later, or nearly 20 years later, it's one of the top big finish stories still. Completely agree. I think that's absolutely perfect. I'm astonished they haven't done it as a Christmas episode for TV. Exactly. You consider other stories that have been adapted and this one would work perfectly. But yeah. Who knows? Maybe one day. Fingers crossed. So that's it. The top five Big Finish 8th Doctor monthly range stories as chosen by the listeners. Remember, if you want updates on our latest episodes and other things we've been up to, plus other 8th Doctor news, rarities and silliness, remember to follow us on Twitter where we're at Pieces of 8th with 8th written out as a full word rather than a number with TH at the end. Matt, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where could they find you? I'm the underscore Cybermat on Twitter and I've got a website matthewmichael.org where I'm currently doing day on 
day episode reviews of the classic series of Doctor Who, up to the fifth Doctor at the moment. Fantastic. Matt, we'd like to say a huge thanks for joining us this week on Pieces of Eight. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me. But that's all we've got time for this week, and we'll be back next week to hear from the man who owns the actual TARDIS console from the TV movie. Set emotions to maximum jealousy. I can assure you that I was most definitely in that place as I got to see it in the corner of his office alongside one of the staffs of Rassilon. So, until next time, I've been Kenny Smith. And I'm Matt Michael. <laughs> and I was Rebecca Chapman. 